Volume One, Chapter Four of the Old Manor House. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rick Cornwall. The Old Manor House by Charlotte Turner Smith. Volume One, Chapter Four. Love rendered Orlando so politic that he determined rather to defer the happiness he hoped for in gaining unmolested access to Monomia for two or three days, than to risk by precipitancy the delightful secret of the concealed door, and to watch the motion of the dragon whose unwearied vigilance might at once render it useless. He therefore set himself to observe the hours when Mrs. Leonard was most certainly engaged about her mistress, and he found that as she indulged very freely in the pleasures of a good table, of which she was herself directress, she became frequently unwilling to encounter much exertion after dinner, and generally left Monomia, who either did not dine below or retired with the tablecloth, unmolested till six o'clock, when, if he was not there, she was called down to make tea. These hours, therefore, seemed most propitious for the experiment he must of necessity make which was to ascend the staircase, and seek for the door that probably, though now blocked up, had originally led from it into the room inhabited by Monomia. From whence, as it was perhaps only boarded up, he hoped to make her hear, and to prevail upon her to assist in forcing a passage through it. He knew Mrs. Leonard was less upon the quivive when he was not about the house, and therefore the evening before that, when he intended to put his project in execution, he took leave of Mrs. Rayland, and told her that he was going home for a few days, when, with her permission, he would return. Mrs. Rayland, who now thought the house melancholy without him, bade him come back to the hall as soon as he could, which he promised with a beating heart, and departed. The next day, however, having taken the precaution to get a letter of compliment from his father to Mrs. Rayland, the better to account for his quick return, if to account for it should be necessary. He set out on foot after dinner, and as he arrived at Rayland Hall, just as the servants of that family were eating theirs, which was always a very long and momentous business, he had a good fortune not to meet anyone but to enter the lower room of the turret, and as he had often the key, he now locked the door, and listening very attentively, heard Monomia walking above, and convinced himself that she was alone. As silently as he could, he removed the planks and timber that concealed the door, and having so placed them without discovering the aperture, they leaned so hollow from the wall that he could get under them, he tore away the remaining impediments that obstructed him, and entered the low staircase, of which about fourteen broken and decayed steps led, as he expected, to another door which was also boarded up, and then wound up to the top of the turret. He stopped a moment and listened. He distinctly heard Monomia sigh deeply and open a drawer. He considered a moment what way of accosting her would least likely to alarm her too suddenly, and at length he determined to speak. After another pause, and finding all was silent in her room, he tapped softly against the boarded door, and lowing his voice, he called, Monomia, Monomia. The affrighted girl exclaimed, Good God, who is there? Who speaks? Be not affrighted, replied he, speaking louder. It is Orlando. Orlando, and from whence, dear sir, do you speak? I know not, for I cannot tell what part of your room this door opens to. Tell me, where do you hear the sound I now make? Against the head of my bed. 
cannot you then remove the bed and see if there is not a door? I can, replied Monomia, if my trembling does not prevent me, for my bed goes upon casters. But indeed I tremble so. If my aunt should come— She will not come, replied Orlando impatiently. Do not give away to groundless fears, Monomia, but if ever you had any friendship for me, exert yourself now to procure the only opportunity we shall ever have of meeting. Remove your bed and see what is behind it. Monomia, trembling and amazed as she was, found in the midst of her alarm a sensation of joy that was indescribable. It lent her strength to remove the bed, which it was not difficult to do, but the room was hung with old-fashioned glazed linen, when many years before it had been fitted up as a bedchamber. This kind of heiress entirely hid the door. Ah, cried Monomia, there is no door, Mr. Orlando. The hangings are just the same here as about the rest of the room. Cut them, cried he, with your scissors, and you will find there is a door. But if my aunt should discover that they are cut. Oh, heavens, exclaimed Orlando, if you are thus apprehensive, Monomia, we shall never meet. But if you have any regard for me, the adjuration was too powerful. Monomia forgot the dread of her aunt in the superior dread of offending Orlando. She took her scissors, and cutting the hangings, which through time were little more than tinder, discovered the door, which was very thin and only nailed up strengthened on the outside by a few slight deals across it. Orlando, who, like another Pyramus, watched with a beating heart the breach through which he now saw the light, forcing away those slight barriers with very little difficulty, and then setting his foot against the door it gave way, and the remnant of tattered hanging made no resistance. He found himself in the room with Monomia, who from mingled emotions of pleasure and fear could hardly breathe. At length, cried he, I have found you, Monomia, at length I have got to you. But we shall both be utterly ruined, interpreted she, if my aunt should happen to come. Speak low, for heaven's sake, speak low. I should die upon the spot if she should happen to find you here. Let us consider, said Orlando, how we may meet for the future. I do not mean to stay now, but you see this door gives us always an opportunity of seeing each other. "'But how shall I dare?' cried the trembling Monomia. "'My aunt watches me so narrowly that I am never secure of being alone in a moment. "'Even now, perhaps, she may be coming.' "'So great was the terror which this idea impressed on the timid Monomia "'that Orlando saw that there was no time to be lost in settling their more secure meetings. "'Have you,' said she, "'have you, Monomia, courage enough to make use of this door, "'to come down into the study to me when we are all sure the house is quiet?' You know there is a passage to the end of the house, without crossing either of the great courts or any of the apartments, by going through the old chapel, and nobody can hear you. I only propose this because I suppose you are afraid of letting me come up here. Oh, either is very wrong, replied she, and I shall be sadly blamed. Well then, Monomia, I am deceived, cruelly deceived. I did believe that you had some regard for me, and I protest to heaven that I mean nothing but the purest friendship towards you. I want you to read, which I know you have no opportunity of doing. I would find proper books for you, for you may one day have occasion for more knowledge than you can acquire in the way to which you now live. Perhaps clandestine meetings might not be right in any other case, but persecuted as you are, Monomia, we must meet clandestinely, or not meet at all. Alas, my dear friend, it may not be long that I may be here to ask this favor of you, or to request you to oblige me for your own good. 
My father is considering how to settle me in life. To settle you, said Monomia faintly. Yes, I mean to put me into some profession in the world, and whatever it is, it will of course carry me quite away from hence. As soon as it is determined upon, therefore, Monomia, I shall go, and perhaps we shall never meet again. Yet you now refuse to grant me the only happiness that possibly my destiny will ever suffer me to taste. I mean that of being some little service to you. What harm can there really be, Monomia, in what I request? Have we not lived from children together like brother and sister? And why should we give up the sweet and innocent pleasure of loving each other, because your aunt is of a temper so detestably severe and suspicious? Indeed, I know not, said Monomia, whose tears now streamed down her cheeks. But I know, Orlando, that I cannot refuse what you ask, for indeed I do not believe that you would desire me to act wrong. No, I would die first. Tell me, then, what would you have me do? I tremble so that I am really ready to sink, lest my aunt should come. Tell me, dear Orlando, what should you have me do? Replace your bed as soon as I am gone, and I will take care that no sign shall remain below of the discovery I have made. As soon as the family are all in bed, and you are sure that your aunt has gone for the night, I will come up and fetch you into the study, where, whenever I am here, we can read for an hour or two every night. Tell me, Monomia, do you agree to this? I do, replied she. And now, dear Orlando, go. It will soon be tea-time. My aunt will come to call me. You will be ready then to-night, Monomia? To-night? Yes, for why should we lose an hour when perhaps so few are left me? When I am gone to some distant part of the world, you may be sorry for me, Monomia, and repent that when we could see each other you refused. The idea of his going, perhaps for ever, was insupportable, and the timid doubts of Monomia vanished before it. She thought at that moment that to pass one hour with him were well worth any risk, even though her aunt should discover and kill her. She hesitated therefore no longer, but promised to be ready in the evening and to listen for his signal. Having thus gained his point, Orlando no longer refused to quit her, but returned by his perpetuous staircase, and replacing the boards at its entrance below as nearly as possible as he found them, he went out unseen by anybody, and coming back to the road which led through the park, he walked hastily across that part of it that was immediately before the windows of the apartment where Mrs. Rayland sat, and then went into the house and sent up, as was his custom, to know if he might be admitted. She ordered him to be shown up, and received him with pleasure, for she just then was in very ill humor and wanted somebody in whom she could find a patient listener, while she related the cause of it, and declaimed against the person who had occasioned it, which was thus. The estates in this country were very large, and that possessed by the house of Rayland yielded in extent to none, but was equal to that of its nearest neighbor, a nobleman, who owned a great extent of country which immediately adjoined to the manors and farms of Mrs. Rayland, and on which there was also a fine old house, situated in the midst of the domain. At the distance of about five miles from Rayland Hall, the estates divided by a river which was the joint property of both. Lord Carolorraine, the last possessor of this property, was a man very far advanced in life. Many years had passed since the world in which he had lived had disappeared and being no longer able or desirous to take part in what was passing about a court, to him wholly uninteresting, and being a widower without children, 
he had retired above thirty years before to his paternal seat, where he lived in splendid uniformity, receiving only the nobility of the county and the baronets, whom he considered as forming an order that made a very proper barrier between the peerage and the squirety. With all the massive dignity and magnificent dullness that their fathers and grandfathers had been entertained with since the beginning of the century, filled with high ideas of the consequence of ancient blood, he suffered no consideration to interfere with his respect for all who had the advantage to boast, while for the upstart rich men of the present day he felt the most ineffable contempt, and while such were in neighboring counties seen to figure away on recently acquired fortunes, Lord Caroline used to pique himself upon the inviolability of that part of the world where he lived and say that very fortunately for the morals and manners of this country it had not been chosen by nabobs and contractors for the display of their wealth and taste, and that none such might gain any footing in the neighborhood, he purchased every farm that was to be sold, and continued to be so much of a despot himself, that those who were only beginning to be great shunned his established greatness as inimical to their own. Mrs. Rayland perfectly agreed with him in these sentiments and had the most profound respect for a nobleman who acknowledged, proud as he was of his own family, that it had no other superiority over that of Rayland than in possessing a higher title. He had been, though a much younger man, acquainted with the late Sir Hildebrand, and whenever Mrs. Rayland and Lord Carroll Lorraine met, which they did in Cumbrous State twice or thrice a year, their whole conversation consisted of eulogiums on the days that were past in expressing their dislike of all that was now acting in a degenerate world, and their contempt of the actors. But the winter preceding the period of which this history is relating the events, had carried off this ancient and noble friend at the age of ninety-six, to the regret of nobody so much as of Mrs. Rayland. His estate fell to the grandson of his only sister, a man of three-and-twenty, who was as completely the nobleman of the present day as his uncle had been the representative of those who lived in the reign of George I. He cared nothing for the ancient honors of this family, and would not have passed a fortnight in the gloomy solitude of his uncle's castles to have been master of six times its revenue. His paternal property and parliamentary interest lay in a northern county, and therefore, as ready money was a greater object to him than land in another part of England, he offered the estate of Lord Carroll Lorraine to sale as soon as it came into his possession, and in a few months it was bought by the son of a rich merchant, a young man, lately of age, of the name of Stockton, whose father, having had very lucrative contracts in that war which terminated in 1763, had left his son a minor with a fortune, which at the end of ten years minority amounted to little short of half a million. The purchase of Caroline Castle by such a man had given Miss Rayland inexpressible concern and mortification, which every circumstances that came to her knowledge had contributed to increase. She had already heard enough to foresee all the inconveniences of this exchange of neighbors, on which she dwelt continually, yet seemed to take strange pains to irritate her own uneasiness by daily inquiries into the alterations and proceedings of Mr. Stockton who, even before the purchase, was generally known to be a complete, had begun under the auspicious of modern tastes to new-model everything. He came down to Caroline Castle twice or thrice a week, every time with a new set of company, 
Almost every one of his visitors was willing to assist him in his plan of improvements, and he listened to them all, so that what was built up today was pulled down tomorrow. All the workmen, such as bricklayers, and etc., and etc., in the neighborhood, for many miles were engaged to work at the castle, and the delicacies which used to be supplied by the neighboring country, and in which Mrs. Rayland had usually a preference, were now offered first to his honor, Squire Stockton, and his honor's servants, to whom the regulation of his house was entrusted, were so willing to do credit to their master's large fortune, that they gave London prices for everything. The vicinity of affluent luxury was thus severely felt by those to whom it was of much more real consequence than to Mrs. Rayland. To her, however, this circumstance was particularly grating. She complained bitterly to everybody she saw that poetry, if she had by any accident occasion to buy it, was doubled in price, that the prime sea-fish was carried to the castle, and more money was demanded for the refuse than she was accustomed to give for the finest. But with the beginning of September more aggravating offences began also. An army of sportsmen came down to the castle, who had no respect for the hitherto inviolate manners, nor for the preserved grounds around Rayland Hall, which not even the gamekeepers ever alarmed with an hostile sound. Her park, even her park, where no profane foot had ever been suffered to enter, was now invaded, and on the 2nd of September, the day of which the occurrences have been here related, five young men and two servants, with a whole kennel of pointers, had crossed the park, and killed three brace of partridges within its enclosure. Laughing at the threats, and threatening in their turns the keepers who had attempted to oppose them. No injury or affront that could be devised could have made so deep an impression on Mrs. Rayland's mind as such a trespass. She was yet in the first paroxysm of her displeasure. Though the occasion of it happened early in the morning, when Orlando was admitted, whose mind, attuned to the harmonizing hope of being indulged with the frequent sight of Monomia, was but little in unison with the petulant and querulous complaints of Mrs. Rayland, while she was above an hour held forth with unwearied invective against the new inhabitant of Caroline, These, cried she, these are modern gentlemen, gentlemen, a disgrace to the name. City apprentices that used to live soberly at their shops are turned sportsmen, forsooth, and have the impudence to call themselves gentlemen. I hear, and I suppose tis true enough, that Mr. Philip Somerive thinks proper to be acquainted with this mushroom fellow, and to be one of his party. Pray, child, can you tell me, is it true? I believe, madam, my brother has some acquaintance, but I fancy only a slight acquaintance with Mr. Stockton. Oh, I have very little curiosity. I dare say he is one of the set, and it is very fit he should. Birds of a feather, you know, flock together. But this I assure you, Mr. Orlando, take this from me, that if you should ever think proper to know that person, that Stockton, your visits here will from that time be dispensed with. Orlando, conscious that he had never exchanged a word with any inhabitant or visitant of Caroline, and conscious, too, that all his wishes were centered in what the hall contained, assured Mrs. Rayland with equal warmth and sincerity that he never had, nor ever would have, any connection with the people who assembled there. So far from my wishing to hold with such people any friendly converse, I shall hardly be able to refrain from remonstrating for with them on their very improper and unhandsome manner of acting towards you, madam, and if I meet them on your grounds, I shall, unless you forbid me, very freely tell them my opinion of their conduct. 
Mrs. Rayland had never in her life been so pleased with Orlando as she was at that moment. The readiness with which he entered into her injuries, and the spirit with which he undertook to check the aggressors, placed him higher in her favor than he had ever yet been, but her way of testifying this, her satisfaction, consisted in what of all others was at this moment the most mortifying, for she invited him to stay to supper in her apartment, which was a favor she hardly did him twice a year. Orlando, wretched as it made him, could not make any excuse to escape, and it was near an hour later than usual before Mrs. Rayland, retiring, dismissed Orlando to watch for the silence of the house, which was a signal for his going to the beloved turret. End of Volume 1, Chapter 4 Recorded by Rick Cornwall